Chapter 11 of Dog Watches at Sea This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dog Watches at Sea by Stanton H. King Chapter 11 Round the Cape Mrs. Martha Wilson, the stewardess, was a woman who feared no man. She could defend herself. Once she happened to hear a sailor speak of her as Dinah. For this impudence she rolled up her sleeves and thrashed him. At times she was very religious. Then she was greatly pleased if we joined in the refrain of her favorite song, I's goin' for to walk the narrow road, and I want you all for to follow me. Old Wilson stood in fear of her. So she did as she pleased, and her will was law. While we all spoke of her as Dinah, no one dared address her except as Mrs. Wilson or Stewardess. On leaving Philadelphia she slept in her husband's room but when we sailed into warm weather she grumbled and complained about the heat of the galley and expressed a desire to have one of the staterooms in the forward cabin for her own captain thomas consented to the change but old wilson tried every means to keep her forward with him for peace sake he finally yielded and dinah shifted her traps aft she became warm friends with Mr. Parker. Together they walked the deck evenings, thereby arousing her husband's jealousy. Early one morning, as we were emerging from the Galolo passage, the cook walked aft and listened at the window of his wife's stateroom. In a few moments, crazy with rage, he was clinched in strife with the mate. The boatswain came to the latter's aid. Together they put handcuffs on Wilson, and hooking a handy billy to a strap on the mizzen stay, they then hooked on to the hand irons and lifted him clear of the deck. They kept him there till he was unconscious when they lowered him. In less than an hour he was dead. The verdict was that Wilson died of heart disease. Captain Thomas was very much disturbed. The following day the body was sewn in canvas, with bits of old iron placed at the feet. The main yard was hove aback, and the old cook was launched into the deep. I looked over the side and watched the white canvas bubble and sink in the clear transparent water till it disappeared under the bottom of the ship. Brace up the main yard. Away we headed on our course for Japan. There was much talk about the death of the cook, but no man dare openly give his opinion of the matter. Dinah seemed to be happy. Her husband's death was evidently of no consequence to her. That afternoon I was standing by the main hatch when Captain Thomas shouted from the cabin door, Harry, come aft here. 
It disturbed me when he said I was to help the stewardess in her work till we reached Japan. The boatswain was cruel, but I was used to his ill-treatment. But not knowing how to frame an excuse, I stood still and looked at the old man. Well, what's the matter with you? Please, sir, don't send me into the galley with the stewardess. Get forward and do what I say. I put on my best rig and reported to Dinah for duty. For two weeks I was her orderly. It was, Harry do this and that, till I was tired of being ordered about by this woman. One afternoon Dinah started to fill two small jugs with yeast. She was on deck near the galley door, and I was in the galley. In a very domineering tone she said, Harry, go aft and get me the corkscrew from the pantry. I want to draw this cork. I looked at her and then replied, Get aft and get it yourself. The words were hardly out of my mouth when the full jug of yeast came tumbling at me. I dodged it. It struck the stove and broke in pieces. The yeast spilled all over the brick-paved floor of the galley. Dinah rushed at me, screaming, scratching, and biting. We rolled over and over in the yeast, for it was impossible to get a footing. I was a strong lad, but no match for this tigress. I shouted, Help! Murder! Come to me! The second mate, the carpenter, and three seamen came to my assistance. It took all their strength to release me from her embrace. Bleeding and crying, I ran to the old man, who, hearing the rumpus, had just come on deck. Oh, cap'n, I cried, I can't stand this any longer, sir. Dry your tears, my boy. Go forward and clean yourself. You have done very well. You've stood it longer than I thought you would. You deserve a leather medal, and I'll cut one out for you in the morning. Go forward. Then he turned to Dinah, who had been roughly handled by the men. They hated her, and had used the chance to get in a few sly knocks. I've had enough of your humbug. Go to your room, and never let me see you forward of the mainmast, or on deck at all, after sunset. So she was subdued, and kept confined in her room. Bill was made cook, and I steward, a fine team. We had ample opportunities to play tricks on Dida, and I availed myself of them. But she behaved as she should, and in less than twenty-four hours after we had reached Japan, was on her way to San Francisco via Yokohama. Old Wilson was sadly missed. We were now in our fifth month at sea. Dinah had not taken the same interest as her husband in making the most of a little, and neither Bill nor I knew how. The duff was heavy, the food poorly cooked, and everybody grumpy and discontented. To stiffen the ship, the stevedores had stowed two hundred tons of coal under the oil cases. Now our supply was nearly gone so it was necessary 
to move the cargo that the coal bins might be replenished. We began the tedious and ungainly work of passing the cases of oil up the lazaret hatch. Only one man could work in the hatch, so we labored two days before the coal was reached. Then we hauled it up in buckets and filled the bins on deck. To force the ship along, a bull ringer was rigged. This is the only time I have seen such a sail used. A spare staysail was set under the lee of the jib boom. The head was hauled out to the boom end, the tack to the lee cathead, and the sheet to the end of the martingale. This sail may have helped our progress, but it certainly was a nuisance, for at every squall it required the whole watch to take it in. At last all hands had to be called to get it inboard. In diving she had filled it with water, and to save the boom the sheet and outhaul were let go, and the sail trailed under the lee bow till we could haul it aboard. We were favored with a strong monsoon, and so plowed our way along through the China Sea. Scurvy began to show itself. Portuguese Joe was the first victim. He was in a miserable state. His teeth were loosened from his soft, spongy gums. He could press his finger into the flesh of his limbs and leave an indentation as though in a lump of dough. Although exhausted, weary, and fit only for his bunk, the cruel second mate forced him to keep the night lookouts. Nearly all the men were in misery with salt-water boils. At twelve o'clock each day, the captain mustered all hands aft and served a drink of lime juice to us to check the scurvy. Discontent was supreme, but at last, after a wearisome passage of one hundred and sixty-seven days, we dropped anchor in the harbor of Kobe. Labor is cheap here, so the Japs were engaged to work the cargo while we were busy scraping the black paint off the hull. The first trip the old man made on shore, he brought back a Japanese steward and a Chinese cook, and with a good supply of fresh beef and potatoes, the ill will of the men vanished. Dinah left without a parting farewell. She was taken in a sampan and placed on the mail steamer for Yokohama on her way to San Francisco. The first Saturday night in port, the men went aft to demand liberty. The mate said the captain was on shore, but that he intended giving the port watch liberty till Monday morning. They were advised to wait his return so that they might have some money to spend. Seven o'clock came and went. There were no signs of the old man's return, and their patience was exhausted. They went aft and asked leave to go without the money. The mate consented, and two sampans were hailed. Taking it for granted that I was to have my liberty with the port watch, I partly secreted myself in the sampan, and we were sculled to the shore. Previous to this, the captain had agreed to allow each man 
to incur a debt of fifteen dollars with a clothing merchant in kobe as we landed hordes of japanese men gathered round us pulling at us and shouting takey me jerinchka they knew where this merchant lived and hurriedly pulled us in their perambulators to his store we stormed the place and threatened not to purchase one cent worth of clothing unless he advanced us some money after much pressure he gave us five dollars each and had us sign our names on his books as having bought seven dollars worth of clothing from him now was shown the fallacy of keeping me away from the forecastle not allowed to mingle with the men in their quarters on board here was i in a strange place without a cent in my pocket allowed to go and do as i pleased for although i had left the ship stealthily both the mate and second mate noticed me when the sampan shoved off and they could easily have intercepted us and made me return on board naturally i kept with the men and like the others hired a jinrikisha colby although in the far east is poisoned like every seaport by the presence of some anglo-saxon who establishes himself as a liquor dealer there was an old american man-of-war's man who kept a rum shop and dared to insult his country by naming the vile den the american eagle the jinrikisha men knew their business and were familiar with the work of hauling sailors through the city therefore they headed for tom kelly's dive mrs kelly was a japanese woman and both she and her husband welcomed us here we met the crew of an english square rigger the undaunted of glasgow at first we were as friendly as brothers but after the drinks began to take effect the crews settled an argument on the battle of bunker hill by fighting it over again tom kelly was an ex-pugilist he joined in and for a few moments blood was as plentiful as the liquor behind the bar we became separated in the fracas my jap hustled me into the jinrikisha and away he dragged me through the lower part of the town they must have had similar experiences with seamen as they knew just where to take us my man stopped at a place where some japanese women were seated in a large window playing on their samisen go in john go in welcome all the same in i went and found the greater part of our port watch and some of the undaunted's men forgetting the rupture of the evening they were enjoying the chonkino dance with some japanese girls my visit to kobe consisted in being hauled round the city in a baby carriage between these chonkino houses and the american eagle only once did we emerge from this district when the japs to gain our goodwill or our money 
drove us to the top of a hill where there was a waterfall, near which several tea-houses were located. I suppose it was too quiet and peaceful here, and too much attention was shown the officers of the British warship Dido for us to be comfortable. My reader may imagine that there were other things to attract a lad beside carousing with a crowd of sailors. I suppose there would be for one who had not been confined on a ship for so long a time, and who would have been received in places of refinement and respectability. Japan is no different from other parts of the world. The respectable amongst the Japanese, Europeans, and Americans in Kobe would not think for a moment of associating with a common sailor. Debarred from respectable resorts, he enters where he is welcomed. Glad to be away from my tyrant, and as a sailor, though a young one, I remained in my shipmate's company while on liberty. On Monday morning it was a sore-looking crowd that reported on board. It had been decided on the way off to refuse duty, and to demand an interview with the American consul regarding the death of old Wilson. I made up my mind to defend myself against the assaults of the cruel boatswain, who began to bully us as we came over the side. The men refused to turn to and asked to see the captain. I kept with them, thereby showing that I, too, desired to see the old man. Perhaps I might have acted differently if I had been free from the effects of the recent debauch. The boatswain, grabbing me by the coat collar and quickly twisting me around, kicked me and ordered me forward. I pulled a belaying pin from the rail and landed a blow which stunned him. In a moment both he and the second mate were at me, and all hands were involved in a violent struggle. I did not witness the end, for, beaten into a state of unconsciousness, I was put into my room. This trouble was much help to me, for while it was in progress I had told the boatswain I intended to defend myself at the peril of my life if he or any man tried to take advantage of me. My life was my own. They could have it if they wanted it, but beware how they took it. I suffered punishment by being kept on deck at arduous labor, but received no more blows or kicks. I learned from the men that Captain Thomas and Mr. Parker quieted the disturbance, and after listening to the men's demands, the old man satisfied them by taking three on shore with him. The consul gave them no reprisal. He ordered them aboard, and when they refused, they were put in jail. When the news of their confinement reached us, most all the crew refused duty, were lodged in jail, and Japanese hired in their places. Gradually one after another succumbed under this treatment, and returned to their work on board. From daylight till dark we were busy scraping the outside of the ship, and on Sundays it would be dinner-time before we finished polishing the brasswork. 
long strips of copper were nailed on the after part of the topsail yards to prevent them from chafing against the backstays when the yards were braced up after the deck had been scrubbed and cleaned and every bit of copper below the rail polished with pumice stone and kerosene oil we were sent to polish the copper tips on the ends of the lower shrouds and the copper on the topsail yards the st augustine became a very uncomfortable ship the boatswain proved to be a drunkard spending several days on shore in a debauch and thereby losing the good will of the mate mr parker and mr williams quarrelled and beginning aft revenge and hatefulness passed to the forward crowd a strict watch was kept to prevent anyone leaving the ship the oil and the coal were discharged and we were ballasted with gravel after a stay of about five weeks in kobe we raised our mud hook and before a strong northeast monsoon scudded for manila bay now we may be termed a hot ship the afternoon and dog watches below were no longer a reality with the exception of a given time for eating the watch that came on deck at eight in the morning remained there till twelve that night the pumice stone was put in use during the day we scrubbed and cleaned and at night by the light of a lantern we polished the bolt heads between decks and gave them a coat of red lead on the eighteenth day out from kobe we anchored in the quiet harbor of manila bay here again the crew demanded an interview with the american consul but on the captain's return from shore we were told that the consul had refused to see us the natives did the work of discharging the ballast and loaded us with sugar and hemp we were not idle in the hot sun we were continually scraping or doing labor some necessary and much that was not the chinese cook was not in favor with the forward crowd he was not only filthy in his habits but insolent and sullen he became involved in some trouble aft and to be rid of the ship plotted with bill and jack to destroy her we were all loaded for boston with the sails bent when about two o'clock of the night before we were to sail the man on anchor watch reported that the ship was on fire sure enough the smoke was ascending from the forepeak the ship's bell was rung the crews of the vessels in the harbor gave their aid to quench the flames but it was of no avail by daylight the saint augustine was ablaze and burning freely the ship's stores and a new suit of sails were brought on deck and hung over the stern every effort was put forth to save something but it was an unprofitable task as the next day the harbor officials went from ship to ship and confiscated everything that was saved although it was a sad sight to see so fine a ship absorbed by the lapping flames of fire yet i rejoiced to see her burn 
but the ships in the bay were in imminent danger of being set on fire by the flying sparks it was impossible to go forward to pay out the chain a spanish gunboat steamed out from cavite and tried to shoot a hole in the ship's side below the water-line the aim was poor so they accomplished nothing though they shot away our bulwarks the last resort was to send a diver to the bottom to bend on a rope to the anchor while at the bottom he managed to unshackle the jew's harp after which the gunboat hauled the old st augustine clear of the shipping entirely enveloped in flames she was beached on the shore near cavite bill jack and the chinese cook were put in jail but i never knew what became of them the rest of us were huddled in a native hotel we demanded our discharges and our request was granted i had sixty-two mexican dollars more money than i ever owned before for nine days with others of the crew i indulged in all the wretchedness manila affords a sailor having had enough of the philippines i shipped as able seaman with captain dodge of the american clipper oleander sailing for new york with sugar and hemp i signed the articles in the consul's office and was rowed out to the ship where i found three of my late mates on board ahead of me the oleander was in need of four seamen and so completed her complement of men from the beachcombers from the st augustine hardened and fearless and quite competent to do the work of an able seaman i would have been pleasantly situated among strangers instead of being glad to have me with them my shipmates of the st augustine did their utmost to bully me and to have me do the work of a boy in the forecastle the first day out from manila i asserted my rights when oscar cursed me and told me in very strong language that though down on the articles as able seaman i would have to care for the forecastle the question was soon settled he was a fat ungainly fellow i felt quite sure i could tucker him out at a stand-up tussle so i offered to fight providing the other men would not allow him to clinch me they were in for the fun so they jeered at my opponent and spurred me on to thrash him their attitude incited me to conquer from chest to chest i leaped at him rained on blows and gained the victory for some time after this i was unmolested by any one forward we had our afternoon watch below but no dog watch from four to six all hands were on deck we entered the straits of sunda the natives from java visited us in canoes loaded with yams sweet potatoes monkeys and parrots the deck of the oleander was like a menagerie in exchange for a piece of clothing every man secured a monkey or parrot while they were on board they were a constant source of amusement but as soon as they reached cold weather in the southern latitudes 
They sickened and died. Java head passed. We bowled along before a strong southeast trade. If we could have rounded the cape and kept up our pace, no steamer could have made a quicker passage. But the almost invariable westerly wind greeted us, and for seventeen days we were trying to weather the cape. Most of the time we were head-reaching from one tack to the other. Rainy and blowing, it was a most favorable opportunity to Sugi Mugi. There was no end to our misery. Wet and cold, we forever rubbed the white paint with sand and canvas. It was no use to complain. Growl you may, but work you must. One morning while we were close in to the land, the wind died out to a calm. Then a soft southerly wind sprung up, which carried us around the cape. We left the outlines of Table Mountain astern, and rolled along down to the tropics. Now the overhauling and refitting to which every homeward bounder is subjected began in reality. Fine weather prevailed the trade being so steady that for days we never touched a brace. Mr. Clifford, the mate, naturally took advantage of the weather. With the exception of two men in each watch to steer and keep the lookouts, all hands were on deck all day, splicing, serving shrouds, fitting new running gear, and setting up the lower rigging fore and aft. At night, the man at the wheel, the lookout, and the officer of the watch cared for the ship. With a blue sky overhead and a steady breeze on our quarter, two weeks flew rapidly past. Then one morning we sighted the shores of St. Helena, rising above the sea like a great cloud black on the horizon. That afternoon we sailed close in to the shore and anchored in Jamestown Harbor. During our few hours' stay here, five square-rigged homeward bounders, following us, came to anchor close to us. For St. Helena lies in the track of all vessels homeward bound from the Cape to Europe or the United States. Jamestown is situated in a valley between two lofty hills, and from where we were at anchor we could see the winding roads on each side of these hills. On the top of one latter hill is a fort with barracks for the English soldiers. At the extreme top is a signal station. From the town to the flagpole is a ladder with 365 steps. It is not necessary to take the road to the top of the hill. If you are strong enough, you can ascend the steps. Several bumboats surrounded us, well stocked with fruit, eggs, curios, and photographs of Longwood and Napoleon's grave. The old man had engaged one man as purveyor to the ship and allowed us to contract a debt of five dollars each. The men anxiously sought for rum, but the bumboat man knew the unwritten law prohibiting the sale of liquor to seamen. 
He also knew he would forfeit his license besides losing his payment for the goods supplied us. Five dollars is a small sum for a deep-water sailor to dispose of at such a time. Without questioning the prices, we expended the allotted amount on fruit and curios. That afternoon, a waterboat came alongside. We filled our tanks. The old man returned bringing a barrel of tar with him. And at twilight, we were leaving behind us the black, high hills of St. Helena. End of chapter 11